Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore, and I'm really excited for a round two interview with Alessandro Ferretti. We're going to be talking about how to achieve a long-term success with the ketogenic diet. And there's a lot of controversy around the ketogenic diet. We brought up some of it last time. But uh, the thing I love about Alessandro is he takes a really practical and a really scientific approach to all of this. And that really shows in this meaty two-hour episode. Uh, We discuss things like the top three sticking points that cause people to fail on a ketogenic diet, different flavors of the so-called ketogenic diet, and what a healthy keto diet looks like, as well as keto snacks. Um, So there's that and a whole lot more. Um, The whole uh, backbone and theme of this is how to create a sustainable and healthy ketogenic diet or lifestyle. And I'm really excited to dive in with that. And before we do, let me just going to quickly mention our new Personal Pro dashboard, which is a deeper HRV analysis tool that you can access now from the web or the computer. And we've already actually had a thousand people uh, sign up for it and tons of positive feedback's been rolling in there. And based on that, we've already added some new charts and reports like frequency power spectrum and point care to the already present trending analysis tools. So you can find that over at uh, EliteHRV.com under the products menu. It's called Personal Pro. Encourage you to check it out. Now let's dive in with Alessandro. Welcome back to the Elite HRV podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore. And today we have a returning guest, Alessandro Ferretti. I try to use my best accent just to do you justice, Alessandro, but, um, you know, welcome back and glad to have you here. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, your, your, your pronunciation is, is brilliant. You could go to Italy and, you know, just be part of the natives. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no, you're too kind. I, I know a few key words like, um, Oh, bisogno practicare, <laughs> like, uh, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, but so welcome back. Uh, you know, thanks for taking the time out of your schedule to come on. And I think today we're going to be talking and going a little bit deeper on ketogenic diets. And last time uh, we talked, we covered a number of topics like blood glucose, ketones, kind of the difference between low carb and a ketogenic diet at a high level. Um, some food sensitivity testing, I believe, as well. And um, today we're going to kind of dig in a little bit on ketogenic diets, different flavors of the ketogenic diet, how that relates to different goals, and maybe some uh, mistakes people make uh, when they're going through that and and all of that. Does that sound like a good plan for you too? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, obviously if I know the answer that is, but <laughs> yes, of course. I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so before we kind of dive in on that, what have you been up to lately? What have you been working on since our last chat? Oh, flip. Um, just, uh, just got back from Scotland, literally, um, in, in, obviously I live in the UK. 
Um, it was a lecturing tool. I was presenting a few case histories. Um, I've been working a lot on, on my book, um, which I'm really, really excited. The only problem is I just finished the what would have been the last chapter, reread halfway through the first one, and I thought, this is rubbish. <laughs> so I need to uh, modify a bit more <laughs> what I wrote. Um, and all of that research, uh, well, not all of it, but um, a good chunk of the research I've done is also uh, to the future um, elite HIV course, uh, which I'm also very, very excited. So um, yeah, that that's pretty much what I've been working on. And also my rehab, of course. Mm, yes, you and me both on that one. Yeah, um, yeah no, it's, uh, well, great. Yeah, thanks. I know there's a lot of research been done in, in recent months and um, I'm excited for your book as well. I know that you're probably... <laughs> Uh, the most critical person reading your book because that's how how we all are right self-critical but yeah so so maybe for the this discussion around ketogenic diets let's kind of recap a little bit uh, from some of the stuff we talked about last time briefly just saying there there's different flavors of the ketogenic diet right yeah okay and so um, but in general can we say, is it safe to say that uh, a ketogenic diet is one that produces ketones endogenously? Yes. So um, th- th- that is what I have a problem with in, in the definition of it. So generally speaking, I would refer to a ketogenic diet, a diet with certain proportions of macronutrients where we show ketones in blood. Now, where is the cutoff point? This is, this is the more interesting part if we want to be very petty in the sense that is it measure of acetone, which is one of the three ketones? Uh, if we could measure acetoacetate, would it be that? Would it be beta-hydroxybutyrate, would it be a certain proportion between these? And how would these be in relation to, for example, glucose? So basically what I'm trying to say is, do we define it as a present on one variable or as a whole metabolic state where beta-oxidation is heightened and the liver produces ketones? And so far, after speaking to some of the greatest keto researchers, I haven't been able to find a a distinct answer to that. Uh, Personally, I think that is is a a specific proportion of utilizations of fats instead of glucose in our fueling system. And that will obviously show via the presence of ketones in blood. Is this making any sense? Definitely. Yeah, it's there was a lot of big words in there, but <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> it's still a mid-morning for me. I'm warming up to my big words, but um no, it's I I like that you kind of frame it that way in the sense that um there are different variables that are going into this and and coming out of this. There are different inputs and outputs, and it's not entirely clear when we talk about terminology, 
when somebody says a ketogenic diet, you know, that term, a ketogenic diet is exploding in popularity right now because uh, people are interested in it for weight loss. They're interested in it for heightened cognitive function. They're interested in it for a number of reasons. Um, but when somebody says, oh, I'm doing a ketogenic diet or or something like that, it's not entirely clear what that means. So maybe uh, maybe today we can just discuss different facts, uh, ways that people do this and uh, you know some of the pros and cons of different approaches to what most people call like a keto diet, um, which may also actually be not necessarily a keto diet, um, but more like a fat adapted diet or a low carb diet. Um, and then the other thing to consider too is there's other actions besides just what you eat that contribute to the fat utilization versus uh, glucose utilization, such as exercise or uh, or even lack of eating, like fasting or inflammation in the body and things like that. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we can dig into here. You think that that that's precisely my point. I think you amply and very eloquently explained it. Um, but that 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 that's one of the uh, points. Uh, or for example, when people mention fat adapted in the wrong context, I mean fat adapted per se is already uh, not quite a pet hate, but I think is it, people see this in a very binary way. You either use one or the other. Well, metabolically. I don't think it's so. Um, we are talking about proportions of utilization. So the, the extreme of someone utilizing only fat is virtually impossible because we always have glucose that has to be utilized. Um, and I'm sure you heard this before that fats burn in the flame of carbs. Um, we need certain uh, amount of components that are derived uh, from glucose. But what we are talking here using the vast proportion of a specific substrate, for example, fat, to be utilized for energy. Um, and where is the exact percentage where we can say that someone is fat adapted? No one has ever been able to give me that answer. Um, so to, to the point that in my personal work with Waco Jarrus and um, in a way, Dr. Tommy Wood, um, we, we have developed a completely different system to, to try to understand uh, and to quantify a little bit better, which is measuring the food quotient. Um, you know, like you have RER, which is the respiratory exchange ratio, or the uh, RQ, which is the respiratory quotient. Uh, we have put together an app to, 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 to basically identify the food quotient. And that changes in relation to the proportions of fat and carbs. And in a similar way, if you take an athlete that is mainly burning fats, you see that their respiratory quotient is, is around 0.8. Whereas if they enter the anaerobic zone and start to burn glucose, it will shift towards one. So mm. we understand that the fat adaptation is one sensitive to the condition at that time um, and in addition to that it will change um, but where 
when can we call someone fat adapted, um, that that is a huge gray area that we, 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 we really struggle to quantify. Right. Yeah, that's there. And there's so many <laughs> edge cases, I'm sure, too, where, for example, if somebody eats nothing but donuts and cookies and then they um, somebody locked them in a closet for a week and they had no access to any food and then they they came out probably uh utilizing some of their fat yeah. internally for <laughs> for energy and then they go back to eating donuts and cookies you know we, were they fat adapted during that fast or <laughs> yeah that's precisely. or just surviving <laughs> yeah that, that's absolutely my point um we did i have people on a normal diet and via time restricted feeding they eventually burn fat so what do we call these the time restricted fat adapters. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, this this is where the definition is. You know, people get stuck into definitions, but sometimes they miss the main point, which is: is your body utilizing a higher proportions of fat versus sugars or glucose, and would that be beneficial at that moment in time for that specific individual? That that's that's the answer there. Uh, the, the question that we're trying to answer. Okay, and maybe let's break down some of the things that we might know about that, or at least that we might hypothesize. Is so there's different flavors of uh, a fat adapted or a primarily fat based uh, diet, and that when I say it in that way, I don't necessarily mean that you're just eating fat all the time, uh, although usually that can be the case. But it could be, like you said, time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting or uh, different protocols like that that are inputs. But um, when we talk about using fat for fuel, what are some of the primary goals that you've seen people have when they are doing that? That's a great point, Jason, um, because the first question I ask when someone asks me information or guidance in ketogenic diet or low carbohydrate, high fat diet is why. Um, and I have never sent away so many people <laughs> with a completely different approach because the goal will define the type of applications that someone would have, especially dietary application I'm, I'm, I'm talking here. So most of the times, given my immediate peer group of people and the people I've been working with and in clinics, is mainly for uh, sport uh, in a periodized manner um, or metabolic type diseases like you know tendency to type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. I personally don't specialize in cancer. Um, and I, so I know that um, colleague of mine used it for uh, certain cancers. Um, I'm aware that some cancer, cancers uh, utilize uh, also ketones. Um, so therefore, I'm very, very careful and I send them away. Uh, but these will be the main ones. So obviously, we include the uh, in type 2 diabetes, we include the weight loss and obesity and uh, all the facets of that aspect. So these are the two primary categories that I see uh, more often than any others. 
Okay. And based on those different goals, you know, are there different approaches to this kind of ketogenic concept? Yeah, very much so. So if um, I have been very rarely uh, involved in cases where I had to show high number of ketones due to, uh, for example, epilepsy. So in a way, I had it quite easy because if there were ketones or not, it didn't brought you know, a, a, a substantial challenge to the individual, like an epileptic fit. Um, on the other hand, um, it was in a way harder because the gray line between uh, diets, it, was, it could be very blurred. So the, the, the applications were slightly different. Sometimes was just a time-restricted feeding on a decent, healthy, clean diet. Uh, whatever healthy means, uh, obviously. Um, some others was a low carb, high fat diet, and some other times, uh, for certain periods of time, was a full ketogenic diet. So these are the three primary uh, methods that I have used the most and seen the most. Okay, and so we'll come back to those three methods in a second. But I, you mentioned briefly a healthy diet in there. Um, <laughs> and I know that this is an area that uh, can be sort of controversial and it, and it also can be goal dependent. So um, for example, if somebody's just trying to lose a quick five pounds because they have a wedding coming up and they want to fit into their clothing, then maybe they throw the healthy part out the window <laughs> and just eat only cheese for the next week um, because that's the easiest way for them to <laughs> uh, focus on fat for fuel, for example. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for most of us listening, I think, or for, for, yeah, for myself and I think most of the folks listening to this, um, a sustainable practice is usually better or preferred. Um, we like to get quick results, but in general, we like to sustain those results. And um, so maybe you could just talk about what that little uh, side comment was real quick about a healthy diet. And, um, you know, when we're trying to do this, whether it's, whether it's time-restricted feeding or a low-carb diet or a full ketogenic diet, when you say healthy, what does that mean? Right. Um, that that it was one of the things that, interestingly enough, I argued the most in in one of the chapters in my book because at college we were taught about biochemical individuality. So everyone, we're all similar, but all very different. La la la. And then we were given specific protocols that would fit. The vast majority of people. So there was a, a controversy straight straight from the start, from, from in the first three weekends. So one of the things that I consider in general as a healthy diet, uh, it will still have to be. So there are certain criteria, you know, refined foods and you know processed stuff, and uh, and I try to follow very simple guidelines. How far from nature? have is the food that you're eating so are you eating a food that you're able to find in nature or something that 
uh, has been processed. Any form of processing, to a certain extent, will decrease the value of the food. And I'm talking the uh, nutrients value, the nutritional value, and how the food is processed by our body um, without going into you know, strong details. Um, so the first thing I do for a healthy diet is how close from nature, wanting to be uh, meat eaters, vegetarian, pescatarian. At the end of the day, if it's processed, it's likely to potentially cause problems um, or reactions on how the body would metabolize it. So healthy diet, the reason why I say whatever that is, is because then we have other things to consider. So, for example, seasonality, provenience, where how far is actually from uh, the person? Is it, is, it, is it a diet suitable for that specific environment? Um, if you take an Eskimo, you feed it vegetarian. I haven't seen many studies on that, but I think we can all safely assume that may not function very well. Uh, <laughs> and on a really, really heavy diet, if you go to Tobago and you know feed on fats and meats, I'm not 100% sure that that will turn out to be a great result either. So there are so many aspects that a, 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 a healthy diet it would be so a diet has to be put in the context of the environment of the person and the person itself that is what i would call healthy diet and how do we do that that's that's a little bit more complicated so in the in the case of our topic today i think the, the there are some guidelines that i would definitely consider uh, and the first one is obviously refine type of low carbohydrate, high fat. So when I look at a diet, there, there are three main aspects of it. The first one is the energetic value. The second one is the nutrient density. Um, and the other one is the total provisions, for example, for you know amino acids. And the, 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 the last point would be the, the structure of the diet in relation to the environment. So given these three points, then we mm -hmm. can obtain a certain degree of health. If people focus only on one point, like often I see in ketogenic application, where they only look after the macros, they are likely to fall short in the other two points, i.e. the nutrient density. I'm sure you might have come across uh, Marty Kendall, and it, you know his mm -hmm. nutrient optimizer, this is great stuff. Um, and also the context of the diet at that moment in time. So, uh, if you, for example, if you take an athlete um, that trains high-end anaerobic type of effort and you feed them so it has the right nutrient, it has the right energetic value, but the context of the application of a ketogenic diet isn't optimal, then we will see a problem and they automatically the definition of healthy diet may fall. So gotcha. that, that is so nutrient density, total energetic value matched for the individual with their activity and also the context of the diet. That is how I would okay. define a healthy diet or a healthy nutritional approach. Right. So the right macronutrient ratios, um, also uh, so energetic value there and then uh, the right context yeah. as well. And then... The one that I think a lot of folks struggle with is the nutrient density side 
making sure you're still getting adequate micronutrients, which include things like vitamins, minerals, um, enzymes and uh, amino acids and all these different things that, you know, create this, the small building blocks that go into food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And our, okay. So uh, later on, I'll ask you for some quick tip examples of different things that fall into those, but let's come back to those different flavors of the ketogenic diet that you were talking about. And um, so time restricted feeding is similar to intermittent fasting, right? From a terminology point of view. Yeah. Is that yeah, n- nearly. <laughs> nearly? Okay. Yeah. We, we can expand upon that. In my sly OCD brain, um, so the, the the definition that I uh, familiarize the most is the, the time restricted feeding is a window during twenty-four hours, so within one circadian one circa, one cycle of circadian rhythm where people eat in that window. Intermittent fasting to me is one whole day fasted alternated with days of non-fasting. And then we have full fast, which is consecutive days of fasting. Is that making any sense? Yes. Right. Okay. Okay. So I think then, yeah, a few, few people out there may uh, use time-restricted and intermittent fasting kind of interchangeably if they've heard of yeah. lean gains or something like that, and they do a an eight-hour feeding window and a 16-hour fast, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Um, there is a really lovely paper, um, quite elegant, actually, um, that will actually go through the terminology of fasting. Um, and, and, and I've seen this definition from, from a, a research science perspective, and it is the one that I think best describes the the, the different ways of of of, of fasting. Is the, that's the reason why I think is one of the one that I familiarize with. But you're absolutely right. People use the two term interchangeably, and therefore, when you're speaking to someone, you never know what they mean. If it's just a time restricted window, or now um, people are doing a more often the twenty four hour fasted. Um, and with that interchangeability of terms, then we don't know which one it is, if that makes sense. Right. Okay. So we have the three flavors kind of a, of uh, fasting, so to speak, or restricted windows. Yeah. So we have that restricted time-restricted feeding window, which is in one yeah. day, and intermittent fasting, which is uh, a complete day or 24-hour fast, and then a full fast, which is multi-day consecutive fast. And do you use, uh, you know, when you talk to folks who have different goals, when do you use these or do you use only one of them or none of them or all of them? Right. Um, Yeah, that's a brilliant question. So uh, I use mainly the first two, the time restricted feeding and the 24-hour fast due to the people I work with. I would be, I don't have any um, people that, would want a longer fast and the one they do are mainly colleagues and not they don't do that out of need they do that more out of health choices so i can't consider these part of the people i deal with um but there are mm-hmm. there are obviously um uh, benefits uh, especially in some of the long-term chronic degenerative diseases that could also be helpful um 
so I use the first two um, primarily um, either to maintain health or to bring specific metabolic advantages uh, as a result of implementing this type of fasts, um, or to, for example, start up someone that is not healthy enough to go on a full 24-hour fast um, and trying to break them in a bit, um, making, making the whole process a little bit more bearable. And these will be more people that have, for example, insulin resistance or their their, their eating patterns are completely haywire um their 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 feeding window is very wide um i had a message a little while ago from one of the patients that i just took on um and you know the person sent me an email all excited uh in blue so he changed the he went through the trouble of changing the format and the fonts and the color of the email, so really excited, saying, Alex, I'm finally able to eat only between the hours of 10 and 10, meaning after working hard, wow. he was still eating in a 12-hour window. And for him, it was an amazing result. And I can confirm that for him, it was an amazing result. So in that case, 24-hour fast it, it is, not, is, not, it is not applicable because it's just not realistic for the person. And, you know, 15 minutes every day over a period of two weeks, he was able to do that. And he started already to see benefits. So this will be a context in which I would actually use it. Sometimes in athletic performance, but we need to be very careful with that um, because then we have a, an energetic um, value to take in consideration if he's a professional athlete. Um which they can go <clears throat> below their energetic requirements and also nutrients because at the end of the day, if they eat less, obviously the nutrient intake is also less. So the context is right, but then the nutrient density and energetic value may suffer. Uh, so that's the reason why time-restricted feeding in these contexts can be um, perhaps more applicable. Okay. And so, okay, from so the two kind of ends of the spectrum that I'm hearing with time restricted feeding and, and potentially intermittent fasting include just from a general health standpoint, perhaps maybe even uh, a weight loss or fat loss or uh, body composition management goals. Yeah. And then the other end of the spectrum being from an athletic perspective or performance enhancing perspective. And uh, the challenges are on both ends, basically. Um, if you're struggling with your nutrition or you have kind of an eating pattern that's all over the place and not really controlled or, or structured, then it might be challenging to implement some type of long fast or, or long time-restricted window or short window, depending on how you look yeah. at it, but short feeding window with a longer fast. And um, that the goal is not necessarily, in that case, you don't want to just dive off the deep end and do a really long fast. Um, in my mind, it seems like if you did do that, that it might trigger some uh, binge behavior afterwards. As so well. yes. uh, if you're... Yeah. Okay. So yeah, if your body wasn't ready for that, then you might end up 
eating two pizzas afterwards. <laughs> yeah, all, all highly refined food, which obviously <clears throat> um, for every trend and every fad, I'm not calling ketogenic diet fad, but you know, for every trend, let's call them, um, then companies would make products. And I mean, our body and what's around us most of the times have all the all is needed to 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 support a certain nutritional approach. Um, and I saw some supplement on the market that, that were aimed for keto people, um, and mm. I personally wouldn't touch these with a barge pole um, because I think, well, you, you're missing the point. Um, and some people quite close to me as well, um, they went out and bought ketones uh, in, a, in a drink form, and yet they were still, the, 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 their base diet was uh, a complete disaster in the sense of they were still having highly refined, high sugary stuff and expecting a weight loss. Uh, it, that, that, that to me is beyond uh, dangerous um, because then you end up having high glucose and high, and well, not high, but in ketones at the same time. Um, please let's remind ourselves the ketones, unless they are produced in a fasted state, um, which the body uses to buffer uh, in blood to have a certain amount of energy available for the body to have when glucose is low. But if glucose is high and you've got ketones, at the end of the day, ketones are a buffer. Uh, that uh, is not a technical medical term, so some people will probably hate me for saying this, but um, <clears throat> when the body, the liver makes ketones in order to have a certain amount of energy available for the body to function, to be able to withdraw into, you know, uh, uh, cycles to, to, to make energy. It's, it's, if you produce ketones because it's a way overly fed state, that may not be a good thing. Whereas during fasting, the ketones naturally go up and glucose naturally will reduce. So mm -hmm. the sum of the glucose and the ketones in millimolar is generally way below six. So six millimolar, that is. So that, that, that normally is a good way to look at the total energy availability if the body is efficient in using that energy rather than having a backlog of energetic substrate stuck in blood. Is this making any sense? Yeah, that's, that's huge. Yeah, I think it's important that maybe we talk more about this because... Um, you know, you brought up the concept of supplements, and now I know that there's a lot of uh, interesting research that's been going on lately around exogenous ketones and things like that that you can ingest that are either ketones directly or uh, precursors to ketone production that that raise ketone levels. Um, not necessarily, I don't know if artificially is the right word, but <laughs> you can kind of you can get the a flavor of what I mean by that in the sense that it didn't come from just eating normal food or yeah. from fasting. Yeah. Um, and so there's use cases for those. And usually I think this is where it's important too, just as an aside to say that there's um, context again for the, for these, uh, you know, supplements or 
I don't know what what to call them, but uh, uh, tools, I guess, is a, a good catch-all term. And on the athlete athlete side, is usually where a lot of the primary use cases are for something like that, yeah. where uh, total energetic availability between glucose and ketones can be um, a priority in lieu of short-term health, for example. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, no, no, it's a, you know, this, this might be a good uh, point to talk about a little bit further is that um, when somebody is trying to maintain health or uh, get healthier or lose weight or fat loss, <clears throat> for example, they don't want their total available energy in the blood to be high, right? right? So you don't want your blood glucose to be high. You don't want the combination of blood glucose and ketones to be high. And what about the third option is, do you want ketones alone to be high? Or um, is it yeah. is higher always better? No, well, no, okay, so we have people that are predisposed to function really well with uh, in certain condition in certain environments, um, uh, metabolic environments. Sorry, um, so some people would naturally produce more ketones than others, um, and they can seemingly, from what we have observed, they can utilize these very well. Um, <clears throat> others will tend to maybe not be so great in in reaching high level of ketones, and yet they function very, very well, including um, high volume, low in, low intensity type of physical activity or fasted activity. Um, I, I, what, in the way how I see that is that the, depending upon the context, um, the levels of ketones are important in the sense that in someone is fasting and ketones reach, you know, a few millimolars, that's fantastic. But normally that also has a lower degree of glucose. Whereas if we find the two simultaneously, that, that's not a good sign at all. So I think the context of producing ketones is as important as the actual number. Um, and also <clears throat> ketones, are, we're assuming here in blood, um, but sometimes maybe worthwhile to perhaps check the breath as well, as there are no uh, publicly available um, easy methods to check acetoacetates. Um, so that, 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 I think the context will be very, very important in defining uh, the presence of ketones in blood um, and to a certain extent in breath uh, before actually saying. So th this is where measuring glucose can be probably quite important um, because it gives you an understanding <clears throat> of what is the total energetic value that the body is uh, is able to to. Uh, utilize it is just a, a proxy like a reflection point uh, we don't know about the specific metabolism um, yet we you know we have an idea that things are not going great if someone is showing high glucose and high ketones okay 
Yeah, that's interesting. So, and you mentioned that even if you're uh, trying to just do a ketogenic diet, for example, it might still be useful to measure the blood glucose um, to make sure that, you know, the combination of ketones and glucose isn't, aren't both staying elevated. And we're talking about, again, in context here of someone most likely just with health as the primary goal and potentially like fat loss or something like that as a secondary goal, or, or maybe those are flipped, but those are usually the top two goals. Um, yeah. And then we're also talking about in a rested state when you're measuring these, right? Usually a fasted measurement first thing in the morning, right? Yeah, yeah, precisely. I mean, with, with, with breath measurements, you can take them through, you know, the, the rest of the day um, in uh, specific instances. Uh, I prefer still to check them in, in, you know, intraprandially. So, you know, sorry, infraprandially. So in between meals um, as well. Um, you may want, some people may want to see, you know, the, the, <clears throat> the, the reaction of a certain meal. And in that case, I'm not sure if, you know, <clears throat> one method is better than the other one, because once again, the context would change. Um, unfortunately, I've seen so many people going wrong because you can still produce ketones in a hyper energetic state um, where you just feed uh, fat until you exceed the body's ability to uh, basically use it up to maintain your energy balance and the excess of fat will produce ketones. That's another context in which uh, high ketones is not a good thing. Normally, in, even in that case, the glucose follows through and will raise as well. So yes, it is, it, it, it is important to make this distinction and it is important, I think, to understand where the glucose lies in this. Okay. And so, yeah, in that last example that you used is uh, one, so another method aside from time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting is to actually add more fat to your diet. And people do this by either... Um, just eating really fatty food or adding MCT oil or coconut oil or some type of, uh, you know, high energy density, um, usually lower nutrient density um, supplement like, like an oil uh, to, to yeah. their meals um, or even sh taking shots of it between meals. And so, you know, from my experience, that, can be a useful tool in a transition, so to speak, but yeah. it doesn't seem like unless you're an athlete or you have some type of uh, high energy demands, it doesn't seem like that's necessarily a sustainable practice to me. But um, what is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point again, because... Um, so I tend to divide. Um, so one of the questions I ask myself when I see someone is, is this person in need of an anabolic type of approach or a catabolic type of approach or a mix of both? Now, some of the advantages of the ketogenic diet is... Uh, 
in relation to metabolism. And one of these aspects is that it mimics some aspect of fasting, which is in a way a, 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 <clears throat> a great scenario when people combine some form of fasting uh, and a ketogenic diet because they tend in a way to support each other. The problems that will tend to arise is when people go in a hyper-fed state, that generating certain signaling systems in activating certain signaling systems within the body, and then also at the same time trying to give signals that that is hypoenergetic state due to the nature of the diet and the time restricted feeding. These can work very well together, but maybe not at the same moment in time. Um, so most of the people I have seen in the general application of this is to try to optimize certain functions um, that normally are present in a catabolic state. So we're going to try to use fats from our stores in order to lose weight, have you know longer uh, performance, not a high intensity, and et cetera, et cetera. But if then to that, someone will exceed a certain energetic value <clears throat> going into a hyper-energetic state, this is when I saw problems, especially with you know, uh, blood tests and, 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 uh, and other variables, um, including a substantial drop in HIV, um, mm. in a, a generating a, a kind of pseudo-constantly uh, inflammatory state. So these two can go very well together, um, but they, <clears throat> there has to be a, a, a kind of rhythm to it. Um, and what you mentioned is absolutely spot on. Um, if he's an athlete that needs a, a, and he's doing a time-restricted feeding uh, periodization uh, of his training, so he's a certain part of the training where they need that, uh, or they want to embark on that, um, then great, yes, I would have two to three meals a day with whatever is needed once we match for protein, and then all the rest is a proportions of fats and carbohydrates. In this case, some aids are great in order to maintain uh, a certain state. But generally, I, I would prefer to reduce the number of meals in the time window that they have chosen and try to match the energetic uh, value that they have prefixed um, and then fast for the rest of the time. Um, so is, is, is going back to having a, 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 a very clear and defined absorptive phase and post-absorptive phase. Okay. And so it's, um, so then in general, a couple things that I kind of picked up in there is that as somebody becomes more fat adapted and let's say they don't have a high energetic demand. So, uh, when, when I say that, I don't mean that, um, you don't, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're sedentary and that you don't need any food. It just means that because there's a yeah. there's a lot of uh, a lot of energy is spent just living, right? So, um, yeah. 
But we're, what we're talking about is that you're not like an athlete that's trying to necessarily make a concerted effort to get faster, stronger, or uh, better endurance or something like that that requires uh, additional energy demands. Um, so this, Yes, precisely. Okay. And so in that case, then if you're, if you're trying to be healthy, maintain good weight, uh, that slowly kind of implementing some type of time-restricted feeding could be useful in the sense that if you're just freely eating from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, you may benefit from narrowing that down a little, even if it's just an hour at a time until you get to the point where you're only eating between a 12-hour window, between a 10-hour window eventually, maybe an 8-hour window. It also probably just depends on the context of your life. But is there a yeah. is there kind of a minimum window that you would recommend most people <laughs> not not try to go down to? Or yeah. is it or is it can you get to the point where you just eat one meal a day and that's fine too? Yeah, it's uh I, I haven't been able to find a distinct answer. Maybe worthwhile mentioning that there are a few processes that would require a certain amount of time in order to activate. But once again, um looking at some changes in in, in, in variables like you know HIV and like glucose, uh daily patterns of um uh, cortisol and 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 a bit more uh, complex tests, tests. I'd, I'd say that if he's for um, chronobiology type of approach and optimization of metabolism in that aspect, then eating with daylight seems a very, very good way of tackling that. Um, in order to start uh, certain detoxification processes, cellular detoxification processes, seems to me that most of the research is pointing towards the eight hours eating window. Um, for digestive purposes, uh, like MMC complex, uh, in order to be activated, that only requires uh, between 10 and 12 hours. So I think is very much depending by the context. And yet again, I think anything between six to eight hours will obviously be what research has looked at and I also found in in my clinical experience. Um, that is, seems to be the the where most of the data is pointing at. Um, eight windows is eight hour window is is a pretty good benchmark for me to you know to take into uh, in consideration, then if it's half an hour plus minus, then uh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I, 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 I haven't seen any major differences uh, in, in, in relation on how, you know, exactly what is this specific point. But yeah, eight hours, seven to eight hours seems to be uh, a good ballpark figure. Okay. And then so during that time, like you mentioned, um, keeping along this kind of same conversation of, on one hand, some people need a lot more energy or nutrients. Um, so like an athlete may consider having multiple meals uh, throughout that eight-hour window if they were trying to do that eight-hour window. And they need to make sure that they get not only enough calories, but enough nutrients. 
Whereas um, somebody who's primarily on the health side, they definitely still want to get enough nutrients. And But usually one of the benefits of this uh, migration towards a shorter feeding window is that it kind of naturally helps restrict excess calorie intake um, because it's just harder to eat more in a, in a shorter period yes. of time. Yes, yes. Um, one thing I wanted to 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 mention, um, I'm sure you, you you might have come across a group called Keto Gains, um, mm-hmm. led by uh, Luis Villasenor. Absolutely great stuff. Um, because they are combining uh, a, a, an anabolic state with a catabolic application, uh, which is to me is is fab from a metabolic research perspective. If that makes sense in, in my weirdness. Um, so um, you you can achieve that, but it's it's not it's not easy. Hence, they have a very specific format of things and how they carry out things and all their advice is, is, is very sound. Um, so you can be in a muscular anabolic, uh, you, you can have that as a goal and have implementation of time-restricted feeding and in order to try to utilize more uh, and keep your body fat stores very, very low. Um, that may not take in consideration a time performance. So in cases of high athletic demand, I am not sure that that would be the best possible approach because the target, the goal is different. The goal is trying to do something in a certain amount of time and is not in relation to just pure muscle growth, which we can do. So I found that some some athlete would uh, um, enter the overreaching if not provided with certain amount of protein and a regular consumption of these proteins, um, they would reach that state a little bit sooner. And also the recovery was slightly impaired. Uh, we don't have to forget that it, you know insulin and um, other uh, components that are released during um, with consumption of carbohydrates are actually aiding and facilitating the recovery. So th- th- that's the reason why I wanted to specify in sport. So if someone is trying to keep their body fat low and trying to grow muscle, if they go to a group, uh, like I mentioned, the keto gains, then they can find great source of information and it's brilliant. You see the the, the results. Uh, mm-hmm. On the other hand, if they are professionals and Olympians or, or uh, other type of activity, then maybe the time-restricted feeding window has to be implemented in specific period of the training, but perhaps no, you know, keeping it far from certain others and especially performance so the day of a competition or uh so the, the, in this case the fact that people can do it does not mean that they should do it right right okay so um wow we can i'm excited about all the different ways that we can continue going off on this but uh what i want to do is come back to some of the original points that we wanted to 
hit on, which was, okay, time-restricted intermittent fasting is a, a tool in the toolkit that we've talked about. And yeah. um, there's a other two other kind of approaches as well that can be either combined or used exclusively. And those are just a low-carb diet, reducing carbohydrates, yeah. and then also a full ketogenic diet. Um, what's the difference between a low-carb diet and a full ketogenic diet? <laughs> this is so this is so broad um <laughs> generally speaking in the ketogenic diet you have either showing ketones or per definition <clears throat> a certain proportions of um carbohydrates proteins and fats now even in that we have slightly different definitions some people uh consider for example fibers so the total the total amount of carbohydrates, including fibers. I personally don't. Um, and no one has ever been able to explain to me why I should not consider that in the sense that when, when, when our microbiota breaks down fibers, um, they produce short-chain fatty acids. So uh, I don't see the point of including fibers in the total carb count. So I consider net carbs, but I'm sure Volek will have a fit, probably me saying that. But <laughs> anyhow, <laughs> um, um, normally there are other reasons why people eat fibers and would, you know, increase, uh, they would have an insulin response, but I don't personally believe that are down to the fiber intake. So low carbohydrate, <clears throat> I think once again, depends by the physical activity and the stress demand that the person is on because coming from a predominantly uh, carbohydrate-based diet, low carb could be 150 grams of carbohydrates a day. Um, in the way how generally is referred to a low carbohydrate diet is around 100 grams of carbohydrates a day. I'm sure the different um, people, expert researchers, it's it's it would consider that differently so everyone would have oh to me it's 120 or for me it's 80 is it, it, that takes a good way to uh you know redefine low carbohydrate diet but generally speaking a low carbohydrate diet how i define it is um a diet that has carbohydrate enough not to constantly show ketones um but still not still way lower than the average. So even per this definition, the, the, there is a, a strong gray area in, 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 in the definition. But we know there is not straight ketogenic with the usual 5-7% um, of the total energetic value coming from carbohydrates. Um, so this is the main difference. Most of the times, unless there is a very, very specific reason, I wouldn't embark on such a restrictive state of ketogenic diet um, because purely for practicality and compliance because people need to think about that too you know how realistic is to eat under one parameter or the other so that's the reason why i often just by reducing the carbs without even increasing the fat if they are very metabolically uh, challenged um 
people and maintaining a matched protein level, uh, people can obtain great results. And we see, obviously, the, 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 the glucose dropping, um, insulin sensitivity increasing, and just being metabolically more efficient. So th- this is how I tend to consider the two. Okay, so um, let me just make sure I understand that correctly. Is that um, so? A low carbohydrate diet is one that is much lower than probably people who are free eating uh, would eat. So under a hundred grams, or poss- possibly even lower of carbohydrates, but not so low that they're fully in a ketogenic state in the sense that they're prim- primarily or only using not only <laughs> so I tr- try not to use these absolute yeah. <laughs> terms but um the uh they're only dang it <laughs> they're primarily using fat for fuel and ketones for <coughs> fuel um they're they're not that far yet because there's enough carbohydrates in the diet still to where glucose is a major player as far as energy utilization goes yeah. and but especially in people who are overweight or have excess body fat or um, things like that that are available for use, they may still get, while not consuming a lot of energy density, they may still get great results and be able to uh, lose some of that body fat as it gets used for fuel to supplement the lower energy intake that they're experiencing. Yes, precisely. And, and we go back to what we mentioned earlier about, at the end of the day, if you are in a hyper-energetic state, well, most of the times, fast stores are not accessed very well, if at all. So when people look at changing their proportions and going on to a low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diet, and their 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 purpose is to for example, weight loss, well, a deficit, a slight deficit, I think is highly advisable. In fact, most of the weight loss, it to me, is a modified high-protein diet rather than just a low-carbohydrate. It should be a low-carbohydrate, not too high fats, and match protein type of approach. So is not that if you eat fat you burn fat that that's to a certain extent a misconception because it depends by the amount (laughs) there's someone of fat that they eat if the body requires a certain amount of energetic value they have five percent carbohydrates but they way overfeed on the fats um then we saw some disastrous uh, blood lipid profile um, of people, you know, if they carry out like that for a week or so, it's not a big problem. If they are healthy, it's also not a major problem in the short run. But when people are already metabolically not working optimally and they adopt that system, eating also refined foods, like you mentioned earlier, then that, 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 that doesn't work very well. Um, which is the reason why most of the time I clean up the diet a bit and then I choose either ketogenic application, if applicable and if appropriate, or just a more simpler low carbohydrate. And then I use fat as a gouge to see how much weight they're actually 
losing because we can get the body to access fats anyhow um, by, for example, certain activities uh, or a slightly prolonged fast. Um, but is not just what we eat that dictates the food that the, the, the substrate that the body is going to use. There are also metabolic conditions that will require that. Mm. Okay. And yeah, so in order to get a deficit, an energy deficit, so to speak, there's also a lot of uh, sustainability questions around that, right? Because um, you can starve yourself for a short period of time pretty easily if you're determined enough, but uh, eventually your body's going to be working pretty hard against you in that effort and you're going to really uh, want to eat <laughs> eat more food soon. And yeah. uh, similarly, yeah. if you have just an energy deficit and you're trying to maintain that for a weight loss or fat loss type scenario, it seems to help if you eat adequate or maybe even overeat a little bit of protein and you know, I say that cautiously because then people will get the whey protein shakes and start dumping yeah. tons and tons of protein yeah. into their meals. But uh, what I just mean is get adequate protein, start there, and then also yeah. maintain the nutrient density so that your body is still, you know, getting the resources that it needs so it turns down some of those uh, hunger signals and turns on the satiety signals. We talked about this a little bit yeah. in uh, when I interviewed Rob Wolf for his Wired to Eat book, which he talks a lot about. There. Yes, yes, yes. That was awesome, actually. Um, it, he describes the point very well. Um, and the other thing to 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 consider is that someone someone that eats at regular times, it's unlikely to manifest hunger. Um, So if someone eats at regular time, I think is of great help in in controlling their hunger. So the body is expecting food at a certain time, and regular eating patterns, I think, to me, are quite pivotal in the expression of hunger. Um, and it's interesting that I tried a period of measuring uh, constantly and seeing outcomes. And then I did a week of, in a way, washout. And then another week where the person could not measure anything. Of course, there are some confounders in there because um, they would roughly start to estimate. Um, the, the the quantities and foods, but the, my uh, my direction was eat to hunger, um, so eat to need and hunger. And what what actually came out is that I know it was only a week, and it was only like a, a personal research project. It wasn't a, a, a study, um, but it was really interesting that all the individuals basically had very 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 little changes, if at all. Um, and I think um, what is important to notice is that when these people were training, automatically they would have an extra meal. Right. And that, so when, when the body works well, um, I think hunger is controlled very well. 
But when someone starts to skip this meal, skip that meal, eating erratically, this is when hunger, I think, is, as, as Rob has described it, um, you know, this is when hunger becomes a little bit more uh, hard to manage successfully. Um, and that doesn't last. Any program that was relying purely on motivation normally is a setup for failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's huge. That's a really important point that um, I think in the back of my mind, I was aware of it, but I didn't think that clearly about that uh, timing and being on a schedule of eating can really help regulate hunger as well. And it makes complete sense because, um, you know, we have a dog now. And uh, one of the yeah. things that's interesting <laughs> about if, if you don't free feed your dog in the sense that you give them meals at certain times, pretty much every day at that time, they know it's time to eat and they go uh, sit near yeah. the food. <laughs> uh, so yeah. it's, uh, it's a similar thing. And, and you can change up your dog's schedule, feed them three times a day, twice a day, once a day. There's many different uh, theories and preferences depending on the dog. But whatever schedule you get them on, they pretty much uh, get you, stick to stick it. To it. <laughs> um, but I, I, I also went a little bit further um, because I started to measure um, just HIV uh, behavior and the uh, glucose. Um, and it was really interesting that exactly the same food eaten different times, later window, early window. So I did all my little experiments and by far it's, it's you know, people that ate regularly had the best profile in whichever way we looked at it, both in HIV or blood glucose or uh, how they felt, which is obviously self-reported data is really important, especially with hunger. Because um, it's really interesting when people, when you ask people, uh, you know, oh, I'm really hungry. Uh, but what does that mean? Is it true hunger or is it a form of craving? So is it more physiological or more psychological? Right. And inevitably, the answer to that, many times, if I get, if I, if I would have to put a rough estimate just by thinking about it, so picked up a little bit out of a hat, it would be probably 60 to 70%. So six to seven cases out of 10 will normally say um, either due to uh, because they were stressed or because they were, you know, working on certain things because of boredom or because a overreaction to a fasting period. That That's really interesting because they consider that as a craving without me having to say mm. anything. Um, normally true hunger would manifest slightly differently um so that, that that i think yeah that's a very important point jason you you, you just made that it's it's it is it, is interesting to see why people eat right no that makes complete sense and i you know that i can say personally that that affects me in the same way in the sense that um occasionally when times are stressful and I have a lot of work to do. My eating schedule gets a little bit off and I'll free eat a little bit more and, uh, you know, things like that. But then I'll realize what's going on. I'll make a concerted effort to kind of reset my window, uh, have a little bit more of a restricted window. But 
going into it, if I have that mindset, I'm like, okay, today I'm resetting. I'm going to drink a lot of water. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, stay, stay yeah. hydrated and, uh, and that type of stuff. It, it's pretty easy actually to, uh, you know, yes. I, I don't want to downplay the effort because people keep in context that I've been doing this a long time. So for, for me, resetting is just putting my mind to it one day, basically. Um, but it wasn't always that easy. And, uh, but, you know, on the other days leading up to it, it's like, oh, it was so hard when I didn't have, uh, when it was just kind of in the moment uh, and, you know, free eating and saying like, oh, I probably shouldn't be doing this right now, but I'm really hungry and I'm kind of stressed and I really just need to do this. Um, but when you kind of have the right mindset and the right tools in place and stuff, it becomes a lot easier. Uh, yeah. And in a way, once again, your body is used to that, right? So it's another facet of the same of the same problem, in a way. So your body knows when there is a period of overfeeding or a certain type of diet, then there's going to be a period of kind of readjusting. Um, and I think that's totally cool. Um, and it doesn't seem to be very hard to to do because you are investing a certain amount of motivation, you know that there is an end, and you know that after that, you're back to your normality, um, which is one of the problems I have with people constantly chopping and changing how they eat and what do they do and, you know, the timings and the type of substrate. And, and uh, I have seen from the data I have measured and observed that regular eating times are particularly important, possibly in the first part of the day. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm not including, I'm not even considering the people that say that I'm skipping breakfast and then they have four or 500 calories in the form of, you know, fat drink of some sort. <laughs> right. um, that, that's not fasting that that bumps up the ketones but that's not a faster state at all um and the fact that you got ketones does not necessarily imply that you're fasting um that would be in a form of exogenous <laughs> to me to a certain point um and while we're on the subject the main problem with that is then i've noticed from uh monitoring remotely people's food diary that when they skip breakfast in that manner inevitably or even without the four or five hundred calories for breakfast in a liquid fat uh, drink um inevitably they overeat later on in the day mm -hmm. and that 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 has never that had the highest correlation with fasting glucose level the later they eat the more they ate later after dim light melatonin onset or basically in the evening the higher was the fasting glucose level the following morning despite the proportion of the food mm. and it wasn't only an n equal 37 so not huge but that to me was very relevant because as soon as they anticipated that feeding window they with the same roughly the same macros and roughly the same foods we are we are we are an animal of habit um 
they, the, the, the glucose dropped and the HIV improved. HIV wasn't so sensitive, but the blood glucose was quite substantially. Um, so I think there is definitely something in there in as far as the food timing, as well as um, not just the, you know, the proportion. And what's interesting is that the people that started to anticipate that window, they did not manifest anywhere near the same hunger later on in the evening. Mm. And I think that's quite important from an application perspective. So from a compliance perspective. Yes. No, that's, that's great. I mean, you can add, add one to your N equals 37 because that's how it works for me too. It's um, right. When, when I eat late, Definitely my fasted blood glucose in the morning is much higher. I'm hungrier also a lot of times uh, when I wake up. And also uh, you know, when I keep my restricted window to earlier in the day, I typically now eat my last meal well before the sun goes down. And uh, wow. I'm, I'm not hungry after that. It's uh, it's fine. And the, the other thing that's helped me with that is... Uh, I, you know, I, I'm just a human like anyone else and I have some uh, tendencies and things. So for me, it's easier if I focus on overeating fibrous vegetables. <laughs> yeah. So rather than trying to cut back on other things, I think, okay, let me just eat a ton of fibrous vegetables. And uh, that helps me a lot. Um, because psychologically it's easier. I get tons of micronutrient density that way. And then yeah. um, it helps me not be hungry. And, and I don't I don't always do that, but it just helps when I'm trying to, um, you know, reset things. And uh, so, so let's bring this back around a little bit to some uh, keto specific questions I think that people might have. I know oh. I, know I have some uh, further questions too. Um, but before I do that, sure. did you have another something there? No, 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 totally. Uh, no, totally great. I think we are, yeah, we are, we, we covered quite a few aspects that can, uh, in a way, if not done correctly, they can truly sabotage, um, the, uh, you know, the execution of, in the results of a ketogenic diet or low carbohydrate diet. So it's not just the macro, but also, as you mentioned, vegetables, nutrient density, the timing, controlling the hunger uh, <clears throat> in relation to inter time restricted feeding and intermittent fasting. So uh, I think there were these are often the, the, the gray area that people tend to go wrong and then potentially give up the diet because it doesn't seem to work. Right, right. Yeah, and yeah, that's a uh, that's a, a point that I think is tr tricky for people. Is um, anytime you make changes to your diet, like you were just saying, even if you're changing the schedule, it's gonna be there's gonna be a transition time where it's not easy. And um, you yes. know, some people get lucky, and whatever phase there are, or context of their life, they make a change, and it's really easy, and they just do it. Um, that's great. Um, but for most people making change, even if the change is, uh, you know, just change in general is hard. So, um, especially around diet and things that are so chemically and psychologically, uh, working against change. Um, so if I, uh, apologies, if I may interject for one 
second, mm-hmm. uh, well, be more than that. Um, what, what, what is really interesting is that I used to give out sheets and sheets of stuff uh, when I would see a patient or a client. Um, right now, I completely and radically changed my approach. Um, they, they, they do some things that are basics before they before i i get fully involved um these are simple cleanups of the diet so shifting towards a certain a minimal amount of vegetables getting some quality proteins and trying to reduce or cut out the highly refined stuff so that that's the basic okay um and then in the implementation obviously i help them if it depends how far they come with their diet at that moment in time. So there are degrees of adaptation. But generally speaking, I prefer always something that isn't perfect, but totally compliable. They engage in that and they bank it. They, that is now a new habit and move up the ladder um, in, a, in a very simple, bite-sized, stepper-like manner. That has to me in my cohort, proven the, the, the best possible approach as far as compliance is concerned. Many times when I would give out, you know, very detailed things, they would come back in a way with a sense of failure because they couldn't, you know, they couldn't adopt all of them. And I think this is specific, especially relevant in, in this context. Um, rather than trying to reach ketones by next week, I think is way more important to prepare, do all the foundation of the diet that will predispose for that, trying to minimize the potential side effects, uh, what people call you know keto flu or dip of energy or poor sleep or whatever that may be, um, to then move gradually towards that approach. Some people preferred to do the you know kind of uh, cold turkey and just go in you know and just do everything in one go yet generally these were the people that didn't last so i think there is a strong and important element to that of the adaptation um so trying to move towards a certain goal but try to bear in mind compliance and application the, the you know the, the potential for the person to 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 actually not go through hell um whilst actually doing it that seems to help quite dramatically especially in the low carbohydrate but even more in the ketogenic type of applications mm. well that's that's huge that's uh that's a good point so i mean people can kind of uh, think about their context and what their goals are. Um, I would agree definitely what I've seen in, in, uh, you know, I haven't been coaching clients in a long time directly, but just talking to people who are implementing this and, and implementing it with some of the few people I work directly with now is that, um, it's not always there. You always got to keep the current context of your situation in mind and what is, a step that's that you can make to step towards your goal and maintain sustainable progress 
and not just get a short-term result that then yo-yos back in the other direction in a couple of weeks, right? And so... Precisely. Okay. Yeah. And so basically, yeah. that's not always that you're going to go straight into a ketogenic diet, for example. It could be, in my example's case, is that I find everything much easier when I eat a lot of vegetables. So for me, yeah. for me, the first thing probably if I could go back to myself in the past when I made many, many mistakes and struggled with all of this through, to, through the <laughs> learning process myself, um, I would have told myself just focus first on eating more vegetables and then then take the next step. And um, so, yeah, that's really powerful. I think even if you're an athlete trying to achieve better performance or um, somebody trying to maintain health and a, a healthy body weight. Um, yeah. Yeah, precisely. And, and so it goes also for the for the for the types of food. Um, so, for example, if someone says, you know, well, the, the, I I really can't eat that food because it revolts me or something or another. Okay, maybe take something similar. Uh, they may not be as well designed for that individual, but they can still have that approach. Obviously, there are limits, of course. Um, but you know, once again, um, is trying to manage the motivation at the same time as you know, just also the health. Athletes, I found actually that don't seem to have that problem in the sense that the, the athlete I've been dealing with that they, they race at a certain level, they don't seem to care much. Uh, the more you give them, the more they do. Um, and it is, you know, the one they are highly committed to, you know, their performance and, 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 and et cetera, that that takes a completely different approach because then we need to manage their health. Um, um, normally, they don't have any problem in, in following even the most intricate and complicated. They, they go a great length to, they have motivation to sell. So, you know, they're so committed in the sport and they're so committed to themselves, and they they seem it seems easier for them to 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 adopt certain things. And I, I don't think I cannot recall an athlete that has always been very fussy about oh I can't eat that I don't want to eat this I don't want to do that. Uh, normally it's pretty straightforward. Um, whereas people that um, already have been struggling with motivation that had a few dietary failure and do, do consider people. All they are in that bracket, um, their motivation is already challenged because they already have a tag of failure to previous attempt, and that often, in my view, is carried out, is carried forward to future choices. Mm. I've tried so many diets, and they come to you already with that demeanor, and, and it's not—I I don't think it's very healthy. And this is when I adopt exactly what we just mentioned. So small steps control them, bank them. That's a new habit. Now we move forward with another one. Okay. And so, okay. So some rapid fire keto questions here. Keto Q&A. <laughs> um, we've mentioned a couple things throughout this podcast on why a ketogenic diet might fail. Why, uh, you yeah. know, what are the, the top two or three reasons why a ketogenic diet might fail? Just kind of bullet pointed. Sure. Um, well, following from what we just said, um, a too aggressive implementation of the diet, that seems to be 
coming up very often in the people I've been uh, dealing with in the last few years. Um, the other one is a highly, so poor quality of the diet that involves both low nutrient density because of highly refined, high fat foods, uh, and also the wrong type of macros. Most of the times, these were in excess, hardly ever um, too low. Um, we get so with that, I think we embraced virtually every every aspect of it. Um, the other one would be the timings. Um, many people, the struggle is people that would overeat in the evening because they were trying to run all day on very little. Um, and they compensated quite heavily. Uh, glucose has never been that great. Um, hence my research project that I wanted to quantify that a little bit better. Um, people in with very strong inflammatory responses that are chronically active, um, normally, despite there could be a very good application for that, um, it's a real struggle um, because symptoms will come up quite quite strongly. So um, I think these are the three groups of people that will struggle the most. Obviously, in the second group, nutrient density, when they overeat certain uh, foods and perhaps not have certain amount of vegetables or fibers in the diet or, you know, some of the uh, some of the basic requirements normally the body will struggle to become more metabolically flexible uh, and you know minimize the symptoms uh, so yeah this is where I would say the, the, the biggest dangers are um the other the other one is obviously <laughs> there is a social aspect to it as well um so for example, uh, people that are in a social environment, well, where that is not suitable right. <laughs> um, through peer pressure of people around them or just due to the availability of what they have around um, their, their, their immediate environment. Um, that's something that uh, it was strange because I went – I was in up in Scotland lecturing, and my bag was half filled with food. And all I had to do at the hotel was breakfast. And breakfast, you can get away pretty well on a lower carbohydrate approach. Mm. Not not necessarily low, but a lower. But if you start to rely on airport meals or, or shops where you have pre-made food that becomes a substantial challenge. Right. And that kind of actually leads me to one of my rapid fire questions, which was, um, what are a couple keto, keto friendly snacks that you like? <laughs> I don't do snacks. Okay. <laughs> snacks. Sorry. Not a good word. Uh, that was a quick one. Um, no, they, they, I don't know. Um, you know, the usual kind of, I don't know, uh, avocado or, or, or um, I don't, unless there is a very specific need, I don't tend to go down the fat bomb thing. Um, this is mainly applicable for athletes and, 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 and 
and, and people that they, they, they are more likely to fall in a hypoenergetic state. Um, normally snacks to me are for someone adapting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's the usual stuff, uh, nuts and seeds and, 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 you know, things that, uh, or sometimes, uh, cure meat, uh, or I don't know, eggs and, um, it, I don't know. It's, it's one of my weakest area because I don't tend to advise that. Um, so I think I'm quite limited in that sense. Uh, but yeah, some of the foods that I've mentioned is probably what I would uh, advise if there is a need. Or if they are going into, going from a very, very constant regular, you know, eating all the time onto three main meals, then yeah, I guess, you know, avocado nuts and seeds and all that kind of stuff okay so uh, but I, would, I would stay i would stay away from kind of um refined food frankenstein keto food right right um yeah okay so then that, that sounds like a you know if you're thinking about snacking or um something like that then that's maybe a transition tool towards what you would recommend maybe is a higher nutrient density, which means, I don't know if we, I guess, yeah, we define that pretty well. Uh, that's lots of vitamins and minerals and amino acids and things in that food relative to the calorie count. So if you're eating yeah. high nutrient density foods over time and getting adequate protein, and uh, then you should be, it should be a little bit easier to go without snacking and then hitting more of that time-restricted feeding window with distinct meals within it um i i would prefer a a mini full meal rather than what we normally associate with snack if that makes any sense i mean right. I, I think psychologically snack to me means i'm not quite there i'm running short or this is when eating out of boredom can also, or out of environmental, psycho-emotional cues, um, can be very dangerous. Um, so that that's the reason why I think uh, just just have something in the form of a meal, but a lot smaller, and maybe instead of having two meals a day in that eating window, just have three or or, 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 or four. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, this also. You know, and I sometimes this may offend people listening. I apologize, but it's kind of uh, an analogy I like to use a lot is if you're taking a pre-workout energy drink, but you don't eat vegetables, then something is wrong with the priorities there. <laughs> and so, yes. you know, basically, um, you know, get some of those basics right. And I promise it will be much easier to have uh, regular energy through an exercise session than not and not relying upon a supplement for that energy. And then obviously, there's cases when you get to higher levels of sport or athletics or higher training volumes where then there are tools and manipulation of caffeine and different um, things like that that you can do. But uh, even for those people, if you're ignoring the basics, then you're leaving a lot on the table. But for most of the rest of people, starting with the basics will make everything much easier and not uh, force you to rely upon 
some type of artificial boost to uh, achieve a short-term result. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, spot on. So um, in, a, in a brief summary, how important is it for people to know whether or not they have the APOE4 genetic expression that uh, when it comes to a ketogenic diet may indicate poor... Um, uh, what do you call it? <laughs> Sorry, it's tripping over my words. Basically, uh, <laughs> inefficient. Yeah, right, inefficiency of utilization for saturated fat. Is that is that a uh, good summary? Okay, that's an interesting uh, one. Um, I'm a people. Um, I mm. seem to do pretty great. Obviously, I don't want to take an N of one as you know standard to make inference on general population but generally speaking the 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 main information i get from apoe4 is just careful on you know tbis uh, on traumatic brain injuries that's the most important information i would get out of it now the body's ability to so i'm sure that you you might have come across that um definitions for for example alzheimer's or some of the uh, senile type of dementia degenerative diseases it has been also uh named type 3 diabetes in fact we 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 know that, that, that there are improvements in a certain subset of these people with the use of you know mct oils because they seem to bypass uh, certain you know metabolic pathways so i i if if the diet is carried out is carried out correctly i don't have any reservation about it um especially if we cross-reference that with some variables that we want to keep measuring um i don't i had i had a long chat with amy berger um which you know she wrote a book about uh, alzheimer's and I definitely don't see any major point, especially if we include other techniques like, uh, you know, a form of eating in a certain window um, and allowing the body to utilize a decent, good proportions of fats whilst maintaining inflammation low. Another thing that may be worthwhile mentioning is that when people don't carry out ketogenic diet or low carbohydrate high fat diet correctly uh, and their eating times are out, their sleep dramatically um, uh, is affected quite dramatically. And they seems to me the people that eat a lot later um, and the deep part of the sleep and the REM and the sum of these two seems to be affected i measure this mm, not obviously with psg uh, i measure with an aura ring uh, which seemingly is one of the uh, best tools on the market to give that estimation because it uses uh, a quite complex algorithm to detect that and it's not just a, an actimeter um, but what was interesting is that is this ability to utilize fat the main problem or 
um, I came across a paper uh, last year um, where they were looking at the clearance of the plaque through certain uh, phases of sleep and therefore making sleep becoming perhaps slightly more important rather than the type of a single substrate within the diet. So that's something definitely to take in consideration. So as far as I can see, um, with the reasonably small amount of data I have, um, saturated fat is not a main problem if certain diets are carried out correctly. The person has a very good sleep, which is aided by a, a more appropriate chronobiology of eating and behaving. Um, and obviously, in that sense, we just need to be careful with, you know, the, the, the injuries. Um, I already have, you know, two concussions. And with the knowledge of APOE4, now I stop uh, competing uh, in karate at certain levels uh, because of that. That, that. that I think these would be the, the most important points that I would consider with APOE4, not just saturated fat. Okay. Mm, interesting. There's a lot more to that. As with, uh, as with many things, I suppose. <laughs> um, well, it's like, it's like when I see when people come to me, they are on a low carbohydrate, high fat diet with high energy or high life load demand and the cholesterol is up. And I said, okay, well, look at the glucose and homocysteine and see what these are doing. Because if these are high as well, then we got a problem. But if these are not, this is how the body, you know, through cholesterol, this is how the body shifts energy inside the cells. If you are on such a diet and you're burning a higher proportions of fats, whereas if you have high cholesterol and high sugar and you are on a high carb diet, then that th is, has a completely different meaning in my view. Right. I was discussing this with one of my colleague uh, pathologists and, and, and even they have not seen it under that light. And you think, well, the body has to use these fats and may not always pack ketones with that. You have other form of fats that need to be carried into cells for energy. So if in an athlete I see slightly raised level of, 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 of cholesterol and total triglyceride, especially total triglyceride, then... I don't have a problem as long as homocysteine is low and glucose is low. So when people make an absolute statement about something, then yes, I think we need to apply it in slightly different contexts. So for me, fat is a problem, saturated fat, if the glucose is high, there is insulin resistance, they sleep poorly, and there are boxes for example, <laughs> or martial mm -hmm. artists that get hit in the head. Mm -hmm. um, in that sense, then I would say, look, okay, keep the carbs, great, reduce the fats and try to have monounsaturated fats. But otherwise, I really don't have a problem with that. Um, I'm not an expert in this specific direct field, so I'm sure that someone can rectify or refine what I just said. But if the sleep is good, they're able to clear the tau plaque and, and et cetera, et cetera, through a very specific phase of the sleep and all the other variables are good, I definitely don't see that as a problem at all. Okay, that makes sense. And and so, you know, what we're talking about here too, 
just for folks' background, the ApoE4 gene is something that some people, uh, when they get genetic testing, they look for to see if perhaps that particular gene expression um, may indicate an intolerance of saturated fat. And there's been mixed reviews or mixed um, kind of feedback on how true or how what to what degree that is actually uh, uh, dangerous or anything like that. And, um, you know, it sounds like here that context is, again, really important and uh, that in combination of low inflammation, healthy nutrient density and uh, good energy levels and and supposedly, uh, you know, good tolerance of different types of fat, including saturated fat, then there's maybe not anything to worry about. Whereas if you're particularly inclined to head trauma and also, uh, you know, have other or and or have other issues like higher inflammation, high elevated blood glucose, things like that, which are easier to test nowadays with things like HRV and uh, glucometers that you can get for like $30 yeah. or, or something like that. And um, yeah. then that may be uh, some more warning signs that you would avoid saturated fat a little bit more and uh, favor things like monounsaturated fat, which are high in uh, olive oil and avocados and things, right? So, yeah, 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 yeah. So you you have all the others that you can, um, you know, you can use. Um, but yeah, that that <clears throat> that in a nutshell is yeah, what what I would think uh, as far as the ApoE four. I mean, there are specific genetic um snips that i would then think very carefully um i think that i there is a list on my website uh in one of the presentation if i remember well but normally people would know because on a low carbohydrate diet and increase the fat and they feel awful continuously right um you know normally they would know about because these people are also unlikely to do well with any form of fasting um, so leaving to aside this, generally speaking for the population, I guess, um, yeah, this is what we discussed. Uh, what was really interesting is that my grandpa used to be dietary controlled type 2 diabetics and his Alzheimer's dementia would only manifest then. So when his variables were out, when his glucose was very high and he binge or engaged in, you know, whatever, um, he then he will start to feel lost and not recognize us very well or calling me by the name of his brother and, and et cetera, et cetera. So wow. I think that, yeah, there is a very strong uh, element to that. Wow. So lots to think about there. I have two more questions, one of which you already covered a little bit of blood lipids changing in relation to uh, increased fat intake or full ketogenic diet. You mentioned that yeah. blood lipids may change. Uh, maybe we could talk about what people may expect generally with that. But then I think you already also mentioned that context is important when, if blood lipids change anyways. So um, could people expect yeah. their blood lipids to change on a ketogenic diet? Well, they, they would expect that if he's... I think if they are 
under normal standards high, um, they need to understand why. And they also need to measure how dangerous the everything else is in the sense that if the blood lipids are on the high side or elevated, but they're justified and other markers for inflammations are low, like, you know, CRP and etc., and the homocysteine is at optimal level and the glucose is low uh, or, you know, sub five in your would be under 90, um, then I wouldn't be concerned at all. Whereas if these will be high, homocysteine is high and glucose is high, then that, that, that's the time to take substantial actions um, in order to minimize that. So yes, there are changes, um, but they're not necessarily bad. Um, and the typical example was very recently semi-professional athletes um, I, I, I followed and it, it was a bit of a struggle because the, 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 the athlete has an impressive diet and it came to me with already an impressive diet um, with hypercholesteremia um, and due to specific, um, um, due to uh, health reasons, uh, he was put on statins. And suddenly we started to notice that his energy level started to go lower and lower. Uh, HIV was dropping and glucose kept being high. When we measure homocysteine, it was 27. Mm. That's not a great thing at all. That is exactly the opposite trend of what we should see. There is very little point on having um, the cholesterol low when then, you know, every molecule that is around is oxidized <laughs> due to homocysteine. And in addition to that, the proxy that I tend to sometimes use for inflammation, chronic inflammation, glucose, is constantly elevated. So I think, I think it's great to give some weight to that high triglyceride, high cholesterol. Um, maybe people want to engage in a full cholesterol panel, so not measuring the levels, but also the particles, the, you know, a lipoproteins and, 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 and maybe then consider which action will be uh, best to take in the, as a course of action. Mm, okay. Well, no, no, that's great. Um, again, context, right? <laughs> uh, context, again, once again, it's, it's honestly, it, 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 yeah, that, that to me is really, really important um, because I don't think we can ever say something for in 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 total absolute terms, and uh, I'm not sure if you are a fan of Star Wars, but um, <laughs> Obi Wan Kenobi, when he was trapped uh, by a Sith, said, "Only absolutists are Sith," which is you know it's quite. <laughs> I'd never forget. <laughs> I like that. No, I am a, a Star Wars fan, but you know, I guess uh, I didn't. I wasn't that deep yet of a Star Wars fan. Now I'm next level. 
<laughs> Anyhow, moving on. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of, um, not really speaking of Star Wars, but the uh, let's we'll end on one more question that uh, again I just like to stir up a little controversy right at the end here is what's your take on artificial sweeteners like uh, erythritol, you know, and all, all of these? Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I don't use them. Um, I don't, I don't, I, I really don't use them. So I'm very ignorant on the, on the matter. There is one thing which is more psychological. Um, so if someone, why would someone would have it? To have something sweet, I assume. So right. I, I have never seen a major problem in just having something sweet as Mama Nature gave it to us. Um, so sometimes I have very dark chocolate with some berries. Um, and that gives me all the kind of postprandial sweetness that sometimes I like to finish my meals with. Um, I, the other question I ask is why do you have that craving? And there was a phrase in a podcast and I do apologize for the person I'm using this in quoting because I can't remember the name of the person. Um, and I'm deeply ashamed of that because normally I very respectful in quoting people. Um, but the person said that the better you eat, the easier it is to eat better. Um, mm, and, right and, and that I think is very, very important uh, because it, if he's at the start, then okay, you can use sweeteners and etc. But if you are craving sweet, I would want to get to the root cause of the craving rather than justify in having that sweet message to your brain and then keep using that, um, then be more and more attracted to that type of taste. Um, and I, I really experienced that when, when my son, which is a 12-year-old, exposed to what nowadays 12-year-old are exposed to, the type of food and etc. you can just imagine. And what was interesting is that uh, for a week, he he reduced his sweetness intake, and then obviously there was some things that were not great. But most of the time, even his sweet stuff is pretty damn great. I mean, two nutritionists in the house, the poor thing. <laughs> um, and and uh, and suddenly, when when there was availability for these type of foods, his intake halved of sweet stuff. And it was the first time ever I heard him saying, this is too sweet. And so he used to eat that. He used to eat the same food that then he classified to have too sweet. So I think I'm more interested in a psycho-emotional aspect and the, 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 the more brain biochemistry that leads to the consumption of sweet things or things that would taste sweet. But unfortunately, I'm so sorry, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have... Um, a lot of experience in 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 
in sweetness. I wouldn't get artificial sweetness in a regular basis, but I'm pretty sure I'm not saying, I'm not stating anything, anything. I, I don't even, I haven't even looked at research. The only research I looked at more related to behavioral aspect of eating sweets. Right. Um, hence in that uh, comment. Um, however, if a patient wants to have a, I don't know, 70% chocolate with some sugar in it at the end of the meal, I don't think it's going to be a deal breaker. Right. Okay. Yeah, great. So then um, that's that's huge. I mean, the the biggest challenge of any of this is usually the psychological and behavioral side anyways. So I think it's important for people to think about that first, regardless of whether they're interested in the chemical nature of whether or not erythritol is going to uh, increase their cancer likelihood or not, or increase their blood ketones or not, right? Um, you know, not I, to... I really uh, Yeah, I wouldn't know. Right. I'm so sorry. No, 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 that's great. And actually, I didn't even uh, realize when I posed the question that it could be broken down that, you know, clearly into two different... Uh, ways that you could look at this question, which is uh, one, okay, yeah, maybe an artificial sweetener like a sugar alcohol uh, maybe doesn't directly increase blood glucose. Maybe, maybe not. We haven't looked at that uh, between the two of us as much, but from definitely from the behavioral side of things, you can take a step back to that those three areas that you describe as being important when implementing any type of diet or nutrition plan. And that's, are you getting the right uh, energy levels from the right sources? So energy density, are you getting the right nutrients from the right sources? So yeah. nutrient density, and then is the context yeah. right? So basically, are you in a transition period where maybe you just came from living off of ice cream and pizza uh, only, and you're trying to transition yeah. to a more whole food diet where having some uh, higher fat foods, but uh, some artificial sweeteners may help you through that transition, then maybe that's context yeah. that could be uh, justifiable, but making sure that it remains a transition and not a, a lifetime kind of uh, dependency, so to speak. Um, yeah. So if there is a dependency on these artificial sweeteners, then likely there's some mismatch in the other two sections, which is the nutrient density or the energy density. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you try, I, I always try to stay away from making people orthorexic. So, you know, they can't eat this because of this. They can't eat that because of that. They can't eat. So it, it just becomes claustrophobic. Um, and once again, know your toxins, choose them wisely. So if you have a predisposition for type 2 diabetes and et cetera, then maybe it's a question of getting through that period with whatever aid. If you've been ill for whatever, five, 10 years, then is that going to cause cancer? Mm, well, I don't think it's going to be as relevant as the previous five to 10 years in, in driving perhaps specific pathway towards cancer. So, and, and the magnitude of effect is highly relevant. How much of this thing are you having? Is it really causing cancer in the great, in the great scheme of thing, things? 
So one, I'm not a, 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 an expert in cancer um, and also not in sweetness, but I, I, I would try to stand back and actually look in the right context and, and say, right, okay, in the grand scheme of things, is it really that detrimental um, to, to, to try to give some, you know, some, 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 some realistic views about it? Right. Well, great. So I, you know, we're coming up on two hours and I could just keep going and going on this, just picking your brain on these, these subjects. So why don't we wrap here? And um, I'm sure folks will have thoughts and comments and questions that they can uh, send to us. And we'll post links to Alessandro and different things that we've talked about over on the show notes page at EliteHRV.com slash podcast. But in the meantime, also, um, Alex, where can people find you and your work? Oh, it's, um, it's really simple um, and it's really safe. So I don't, I don't have products to sell or anything like that. I just put what I've been working on is my website, which is myfullname.co.uk. Uh, so it's alessandroferretti.co.uk. Um, it's all there. You, you just... You know, um, it, if people want to find out a bit more or my previous work, some of the very old ones, I may have changed slightly views. So maybe just look for the more recent ones. Um, and uh, yeah, they can find there and um, yeah, have a play. Awesome. That's great. No, and and how dare you for learning over time? And, and no, um, <laughs> sorry, just uh, this is a bad joke there. But uh, I, I, I sometimes find that the things that I stated last week <laughs> are not <laughs> have a different context. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's uh, it's been a pleasure, Alex, and thanks so much for taking time out to join us. And uh, we really appreciate it. You're uh, also generously contributing content to the HRV course, so. For the folks interested in the advanced heart rate variability courses that are coming up, uh, Alessandro is contributing content uh, heavily on the nutrition side and other areas of the that course. Um, and then also he, he's got a book in the works. So uh, <laughs> I, I personally have come to love books in the sense that uh, you can pick pieces of information from around the internet and from podcasts and blogs and things. But the nice thing about courses and books is it kind of brings it all together into one place and one cohesive message. And it also forces the author, you in this case, to um, basically narrow down that message to the, you know, the most important pieces. So it's a, it's a, a lot of work for you and we're all going to benefit for it, from it. So I appreciate it. <laughs> it's okay. Um, if, if whenever I, yeah, whenever it will be um, finished, that is. It's uh, um, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, it's um, it's. It, I like to call it an anti-fad, anti-trend book. I think um, it would raise a few questions. Nice, I like that. I think people listening will be uh, appreciative of that <laughs> that theme. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thanks again, Alex and uh, alessandroferretti.co.uk. And we will have a link to that in the show notes as well. And we'll wrap up here and see everyone next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yep. Cheers. 
Hey folks, Jason here. A quick closing reminder to check out the online courses over at hrvcourse.com. The experts that you've heard in, in this and many of the episodes on this podcast have also contributed exclusive content over at hrvcourse.com, and it can't be found anywhere else. Many new courses are also in the pipeline over there, and remember, listeners of this podcast also get 10% off of all courses. Just follow the link in the description of this episode or use coupon code ELITEPODCAST when you check out over at hrvcourse.com. See you next time. Sponsored by hrvcourse.com. Truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code ELITEPODCAST for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word, ELITEPODCAST. Visit hrvcourse.com to get access today.